Welcome to Wild Cornell Medicine CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm your host, Dr. John Leonard, and today on the podcast, we will be talking about the link between our inherited genetics and cancer. This is a really important topic and one that has changed dramatically over recent years, something that had very little relevance to actual care of our patients for the vast majority of people and now is very important for an increasing number of patients with cancer and other disorders. So it's great to have our guest for this episode, Dr. Ravi Sharaf. Dr. Sharaf is a gastroenterologist and health services researcher and cares for patients with hereditary or inherited cancer syndromes. Dr. Sharaf serves as the Director of Clinical Cancer Genetics at Weill Cornell Medicine and is an Associate Professor of Medicine. His research focuses on optimizing the delivery of genomic medicine, studying cancer prevention strategies, and tailoring cancer prevention to individual risk. His research is funded by the National Cancer Institute, and the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, or PCORI. I'm really looking forward to a great discussion. We're going to talk about the intersection of genetics and cancer, especially about the genes we inherit from our parents or pass to our children, how that connects to our cancer risk, and how we should approach screening, prevention, and treatment of cancer. So, Robbie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So this is the area that you've chosen to work in, and we're really fortunate to have you here at Wild Cornell and New York Presbyterian because in many ways, this is a relatively newer and perhaps not as widely known or widely available aspect of cancer care and primary care in some ways that is really growing. So I want to start by asking you how you found yourself working in this area. What about this area led you to focus your career and your expertise in cancer genetics? Like many things, I think it's a combination of luck and mentorship and hard work. When I was in college, I had a biochemistry mentor, actually, who took me under his wing, Dr. Nambudiri, who was my first exposure to molecular genetics. Dr. Nambadiri guided me to the NIH where I ended up in Francis Collins's lab. At that point, he was lead of the Human Genome Research Institute. The Human Genome Project, our study was looking at the inherited predisposition to type 2 diabetes. So I could kind of see the future and kind of the nascent beginnings of precision medicine. And I thought it was really cool. I knew it was something that I wanted to be involved in, regardless of where my clinical interests landed. I'd like to start with just some basic background on genetics. And I'm sure many people listening, they think about some of their high school biology classes and big A, little a, and some of the other things around how things are inherited. But really, I think one of the aspects that's very important is differentiating the genetics in the tumor cells, which kind of by definition have a number of different mutations versus what are the inherited genetics of the person that maybe in some ways is the soil for the seed of cancer? So can you get into a little bit of the differences and how you think about it from the standpoint of a patient and their cancer risk as a person or as a whole body as opposed to what's happening in a specific tumor cell? 
That's a great question. Cancer is common. We know that 40% of people in the U.S. are going to be affected at some point in their lifetime. We also know that all cancer is genetic. There's always an interplay between environment and genetic risk factors in the development of malignancy. About 80% of cancers are what we call sporadic, and it's exactly what I just said. It's this interplay between environment and genetics. Our focus is on the 10, maybe even 20% of malignancy that is driven by single monogenic changes, single gene changes that are inherited, that come from mom or dad. One way to think about it is broadly, there are genes that affect cell growth and they're genes that are fundamental to DNA repair. And we're usually born with two functional copies of these genes. What happens when you have a hereditary cancer syndrome is that you're born with only one functional working copy. So that's strike one. During the course of one's life, mutations happen in cells. And a mutation might occur in the other copy of these genes that control cell growth or DNA repair. So in someone with an inherited cancer syndrome where you already are starting on strike one, that second mutation that occurs during an individual's life is strike two. And then there's a series of events that eventually lead to strike three, which is carcinogenesis. So you're basically starting a little bit ahead in the cancer development process if you do have an inherited mutation That is the distinction between these quote-unquote germline mutations, which are inherited, and the somatic, which are present only in the cancer cells, but not necessarily in every cell in the body, and the somatic changes cannot be passed on to the next generation. So there are people that won't get cancer. There are people that will get cancer and have one of these predispositions, There are also people that will get cancer and don't have these predispositions. And then there are people that have a predisposition but won't get cancer. So four different buckets of people with different scenarios based on their risk and whether or not they actually get cancer. I know that there are many types of cancer, many types of mutations, et cetera. But at a very high level, what are the factors that might lead someone with a mutation to get or not get cancer, or the fact that somebody might get a cancer despite having none of these risk factors? I think genetics plays a role, whether it is single gene predisposition, and that means a single mutated gene that confers an elevated risk of a single cancer or a spectrum of cancers. Risk is not fate. It's not predestination. It's risk. Environmental risk factors unequivocally play a role. Whether you have an inherited mutation or whether you don't. So I think that's where all the realms of basic primary care and primary prevention come in. Lifestyle factors, weight, tobacco use, alcohol use, diet, exercise. These are things that whether you do have an inherited predisposition or not, 
that unequivocally affect cancer risk. And then there is the element of capriciousness here as well. Things can happen where one exerts whatever control they can exert over their own risk factors and cancer still develops. So let's get a little granular into the more specific and relatively common scenarios. Patients who are diagnosed always ask the question, why did I get this? And people are worried about getting cancer because it's a scary thing. Which cancers are more strongly associated with some sort of inherited connection? Genetics moves so, so quickly. Every year, there is an evolutionary, if not a revolutionary change. We now know 10 to 20% of solid tumor are going to have either an underlying single gene predisposition or association, and increasingly, even hematologic malignancies, so leukemia lymphoma, the percentages of finding an underlying gene mutation are in the similar ballpark, so 10 to 20%. So I do think this is relevant to all malignancies. Some centers as such are offering universal germline testing, testing for inherited cancer for every incident cancer, for every new diagnosis. That is something that we're trying to move towards as well. I guess it's an example of kind of shining the light on more areas, right? At one point, you could only shine the light in a specific area or identify a specific number of patients where this was at least relevant to an extent you could find something. And now the light beam gets broader and broader, you find more and more things. So as you think about the mutations that we know about being relevant, what are a few of the common ones that people would be interested in knowing about from the standpoint of if you are worried about breast cancer, this is a mutation that is commonly relevant as an example? The ones that are most common in patient's psyche, and I think in physician's psyche, are two syndromes. And so one is hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, which is BRCA1 and 2 related in the majority of cases. And the other syndrome, which tends to be a hereditary gastrointestinal cancer syndrome, is Lynch syndrome, which is caused somewhat simplistically, I'll say, by five genes that are mutated. These are not rare conditions. And so when you combine the prevalence, it's about 1% of the U.S. population that's going to be a carrier, though the overwhelming majority of people do not know they're affected. When we think about cancer predisposition genes, these single genes that are involved, I like to think of it as a hub and spoke. So if you have a mutated gene, whether that's BRCA1 or 2, or a Lynch syndrome gene as the hub, the spokes lead to multiple cancer predispositions. And so it can be for BRCA1-2, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, amongst many others. So there is, in terms of risk and in terms of appropriate clinical management, a needed multidisciplinary spectrum that needs to occur downstream. For Lynch syndrome, same idea, but slightly different cancer predispositions. And so again, if you're starting with the Lynch syndrome genes, MSH1, MLH2, et cetera, then what you find is inherited predisposition to colorectal cancer, 
to pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, et cetera. And so our management is guided by the cancers that are predisposed. So I'd like to get into the kind of issues around being practical with all this. You've very clearly stated that this is relative to a high number of patients and increasing percentage of patients. But for patients who are worried about cancer or have cancer, kind of operationalizing this is the key point. So it seems to me like the major things that people need to focus on are their family history and then if to get tested, how to test, et cetera. Why is it important for people to know their family history and what do they need to know? How far back do they need to get into this? And maybe an example or so of how just the family history might change the approach for an individual patient in how they're screened or managed. Family history is the ultimate phenotype, we say. It's the ultimate evidence of disease manifestation in a family. When we look at family history, we tend to look at a three-generation pedigree. If the patient is a proband, we'll do a look, their children, the generation above the patient, the parents, and then the grandparents as well, trying to call information about cancer incidence and the age of onset. And by doing so, you can look for patterns, patterns that meet established clinical criteria for who might be at risk of harboring one of these mutations. What's really interesting, and this is actually why I love genetics, because it just changes so quickly and the data just keeps evolving. A family history is good, but the sensitivity is 50%. And so what that means is about 50% of people who carry one of these mutations are not going to have a family history. What you see increasingly is this movement towards two things. One is universal testing of incident cancer. So for people who are affected, colorectal, breast, ovarian, pancreas, whatever it is, the recommendation to do genetic testing to look for a hereditary predisposition, knowing that family history may or may not be contributory. And two, because family history can be helpful, but isn't always, it's a coin flip, this movement towards population-level screening. So you'll see this, actually. The U.S. is a bit behind in this, but in the U.K. and Israel, there are movements, certainly in select populations, towards testing everybody, acknowledging the limitations of family history. That being said, I think family history is low-hanging fruit. I think for a patient, for an individual, to the extent one can know about this, because families are families, and some people talk about this stuff, some people don't, and that's fine. Seeing what is going on just makes sense. And it's basically what types of cancer there are, the ages of onset. What I'm going to say is very general and isn't always applicable, but generally speaking, the more malignancies there are, the earlier ages of onset, that's what's been tied historically to clinical criteria, which suggest the presence or the need for further evaluation, like genetic testing. You've given a perspective or a range of perspectives that everyone should get genetic testing or that some people are at least exploring that or pursuing that. And in some ways, it's an easy recommendation. It's harder to implement, perhaps. 
But from the standpoint of the patient, it's easy. There's no decision to make. You go, you get it done, you go through the process. If I'm an individual patient and I haven't had genetic testing yet, and maybe that's never been offered to me, how would you advise somebody the idea that if I have multiple people in my family with cancer and or they happen at younger ages, I should probably be more likely to seek that out if my doctor hadn't suggested it. The extent of taking a family history and then acting upon it and really going through the process that your team does, which is clearly a value. Most people are busy and not necessarily doing that. So from the patient perspective, what should ring a bell to say, yes, if no one's mentioned this to you for whatever reason, you really should pursue this? The easiest thing to do is probably to have a conversation with one's primary care physician to say, hey, this is something that might be of concern to me. What do you think? What's your opinion? Is this something that merits genetic testing? For some people who want to speak directly to us, we always are happy to talk through things as well. So that's probably the most direct way of pursuing it. What's interesting in this field, and this is something that I have to say as well, is a lot of our patients actually already come to us with genetic testing data whether it is 23andMe or Ancestry or something like that, because people have this inherent curiosity or desire to know. The only caveat with those types of studies is just to truly understand what they mean and what they do and don't test for. So expectations are managed, because I think the direct-to-consumer companies you want to make sure that what you think you're getting is what you're getting in terms of a proper risk assessment. So I'm a patient. I've decided I want this done. I go to my primary care doctor. I say, I want this done. I need that. People are used to getting you know, their vitamin D checked or their PSA checked or whatever. What are the nuts and bolts of this happening? What are the ranges of ways you can do this well? I mean, it strikes me that there's the direct-to-consumer where you probably go to a website and follow a process all the way to the other end where you go somewhere to a specialized group like yours and meet with a counselor and go through a lot of discussion and then do this and then have a very involved process. So what's the spectrum? What are your recommendations generally as to who should follow what path, recognizing that it's probably challenging and maybe unnecessary for every single person to go through an extensive process as a screening test? I agree with that, that not everybody would need an extensive evaluation. I think like with anything in medicine, there is a spectrum of care delivery options and they each have their pros and cons. And somewhere in that spectrum is where people are going to land to figure out what might be most appropriate. What I will say is, at least from a physician-centered implementation there are two delivery paradigms. And so one is called mainstreaming, which is the conduct of genetic counseling, genetic testing by non-genetics trained physicians or clinicians. And so people that don't have genetics training, but might have additional specialized focus training in counseling and testing. And the evidence to support that actually, there's a lot and it works and it's a good way to open up genetic testing in multiple disciplines to the population. There are some people who are going to want to see us specifically, and that's fine too. I think the entire 
care paradigm is changing, especially, you know, we've been talking about this movement towards population level screening, just from a pure feasibility standpoint, then you have to be practical here. And so what tends to happen in practice is patients are often tested initially by a primary care physician or their gynecologist or another provider, and that's perfectly fine. And then we end up seeing those that end up having a mutation for further management. Stepping back about the direct-to-consumer approach, that's completely appropriate as well. I think it honestly comes down to your preference. Some people now in the internet age feel completely comfortable like they do ordering from Amazon, ordering a saliva kit or a blood kit from a company, and that's fine. The couple things that people should be thinking about when it comes to genetic testing, which is distinct from other laboratory tests, from getting a CBC or getting your electrolytes checked, is the potential insurance implications. So there are potential implications for life insurance and for long-term care insurance and for disability insurance. So that is something that we talk about during our visits, just to make sure that a process of informed consent occurs. It is a bit more involved than other routine medical testing we do. What are the types of results that someone might get? I would presume there's a range of findings from nothing identified or very little relevant identified to something of major concern to something in the middle. What are a couple of examples on that spectrum that someone might receive as a result? And then maybe we'll get into what one might do about those things as a follow-up. What we tell folks is, whatever you see, don't worry. We'll talk through things when results come back. And patients are often seeing these results before we are because of transparency, because of the direct release of results. When one does genetic testing for cancer predisposition, what usually happens is a gene panel is sent. Because each gene that we test for has the potential to increase risk for so many cancers, you know, that hub and spoke model, we generally test for multiple genes, 20, 30, 40, 80, 100, when we are looking at cancer predisposition. Results can come back in one of three ways. They can be negative. A negative for us means normal. They can be positive, which means that there's a mutation that increases cancer risk, does not mean that the individual has cancer, and then we deal with it. We mitigate risk. We make a plan. A third option is something called a variant of unknown significance, which is exactly what it sounds. These are functionally normal or results that sit right next to normal but that we can't put a definitive normal stamp on because we need a little bit more population-level data. People's genes don't change, but our understanding does. And so part of this is semantics. As we get more data on a variant of unknown significance, 90 to 95% end up getting downgraded to normal. So those are the scope of results that patients can get after testing, and we follow people longitudinally accordingly. Is the approach any different if you're a patient with cancer? So if I have a cancer and I myself get screened, I mean, you already know I have cancer. Is it you're looking for other mutations? Are you looking to help my children? Is it going to change how you 
manage my current cancer? Is it all the above? It is all of the above. From the personal sphere, it certainly can affect therapeutic options for the incident cancer. After that cancer is treated, it can certainly affect future cancer screening, specifically the modality, the organ screened, and the frequency. And then for the other sphere, it's this familial sphere, I should say. So it's this cascading notion, this cascade testing effect. And so if a person is affected with hereditary cancer, getting back to your mention about high school biology, it does come back to the Punnett square. The majority of these genes are inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion. So that means it doesn't matter your sex at birth. Male, female does not make a difference. People still have a 50% chance of passing it on to their children. Their siblings have a 50% chance of having the same mutation. And in the majority of settings, this isn't universal. This came from mom or dad. So there's a personal effect, a personal sphere, and then there's a familial sphere that is also of relevance here. Tell us a little bit about the genetic counseling process because I can imagine a patient gets a result and maybe they go to their primary doctor, maybe they Google it. It seems to me like the process of having an expert in this area, and I know your team is very steep in this, how does that add value? What are the key ways how that can help somebody navigate this? I think it is important. These conditions are much more common than we historically thought though there aren't that many people who have the in-depth expertise and experience with managing them. And I think that is important. It certainly can provide perspective and reassurance for appropriate management from a clinical standpoint for appropriate psychosocial support. That's a big aspect here as well. And appropriate familial management. And those are things that I think we do excel at. And I think people who are in this field are particularly good at. So, you know, it's a knowledge of what is the next step. It often is knowledge of not making inappropriate steps of appropriate care, not under screening, but not over screening, because that's very important. You don't want to advise someone towards an unnecessary surgery you want to be intelligent about what we know, what the results show in the context of what we actually know. And I think patients do appreciate that because there's often a shock when a mutation comes back. And really, after an in-depth discussion of what this really means, given what we know and what we don't know, more importantly as well, I think people do come out feeling reassured and then we can also provide a perspective, longitudinal care, because things change. And so as there are new discoveries, whether it comes down to cancer risk associated with a gene or novel mechanisms of cancer screening, we can make sure that affected patients are the first to know. I want to finish by just getting your quick take on 
the key areas of research in this area. It sounds like it's very much a moving target. Things are evolving, and therefore research is a very important part of this. What are the key areas where you and others are doing research on how to move this field forward? I think it's so exciting because there's so much happening in this field. And the spheres we think about are basic science, which tends to be lab-based research. There's translational, which is bridging the basic science to the clinical, which is the third sphere. I have to say, we have experts who are doing this in all facets at Cornell. And so it makes it a really neat place to work and to interface with people across the spectrum. So on a basic science standpoint, it's looking at mechanisms of carcinogenesis, modifiers of carcinogenesis, that's what you were talking about earlier, really understanding genotype-phenotype relationships. And so that's with specific mutations, what are the exact cancers that are predisposed to within a gene and why? It's not just personalization by gene, it's personalization by mutation. So that's what's going on in that realm. From the translational aspect, there are vaccines that are being trialed now at Cornell and at other institutions for Lynch syndrome, for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, to target the specific molecular fingerprint that those associated tumors show. And it's fascinating work that I think is going to be revolutionary. And then for the stuff that I do, we are interested in the clinical management. So how do you recognize individuals who have a predisposition at the population level? What are the evidence-based effective mechanisms to prevent cancer? From a societal perspective, kind of thinking about public policy, what's cost-effective You know, in terms of money spent and outcomes? And then we also look at health policy and shaping health policy. So a lot of medicine and healthcare systems and physicians, there are quality metrics, diagnostic quality metrics, therapeutic quality metrics that are reportable. And so we're actively working with large organizations like the National Committee for Quality Assurance, the NCQA, with CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to establish metrics for providers to help encourage appropriate diagnosis and management in this field. So it's a broad spectrum of stuff, each of which is important fundamentally to patient care. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great discussion, and you've highlighted the key aspects of this important field, as well as the opportunities available for patients, particularly if they pursue this line of care and evaluation at a center like yours that really is focused on really the multiple dimensions and aspects of this particular field. So thank you very much. I'd like to invite our audience to download, subscribe, rate, and review CancerCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or online at wowcornell.org. We also encourage you to write to us at cancercast at med.cornell.edu with questions, comments, as well as topics you'd like to see us cover more in depth in the future. That's it for CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm Dr. John Leonard. Thanks for tuning in. 
All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Wild Cornell Medicine as an institution.